copy of scripture, we're going to be in the book of Philemon. Philemon this morning. In 1921, Myra Brooks Welch wrote a poem that I'm certain she did not know would become a number one song, sung on Christian radio by Wayne Watson. The song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. Well, it was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer felt it was hardly worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. He said, it sure ain't much, but it's all we've got left. I guess we ought to sell it too. Who's got a bid on this old violin? Just one more and we'll be through. And then he cried, one, give me one dollar. Who'll make it two? Only two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars twice. Now that's a good price. Who's got a bid for me? Raise up your hand. Don't wait any longer. The auction's about to end. Who's got four? Just one dollar more to bid on this old violin. Well, the air was hot, kind of like yesterday. And the people stood around as the sun was setting low. From the back of the crowd, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. He wiped off the dust from the old violin, and he tightened up the strings. And then he played out a melody, pure and sweet, sweeter than the angels sing. And then the music stopped, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, he said, now, what is my bid for this old violin? And he held it up with a bow. And then he cried out, one, give me 1,000. Who'll make it two? Only 2,000. Who'll make it three? 3,000 twice. Now that's a good price. But who's got a bid for me? And the people cried out, what made the change? We don't understand. And then the auctioneer stopped and he said with a smile, it was the touch of the master's hand. You know, there's many a man with his life out of tune, battered and scarred with sin. And he's auctioned cheap to a thankless world, much like this old violin. But then the master comes, and the old foolish crowd, they never understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. The master touches our lives through the gospel. The gospel transforms everyone that it saves. That's precisely what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. When he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What he wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In Philemon, we have this illustrated for us. In the story of Philemon and Onesimus, God changes everyone that he saves through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philemon is the shortest book that Paul has written. It also seems to be the most personal letter he has written. It is written during his first imprisonment in Rome. Philemon is the recipient of the letter. He was a wealthy man from Coloss, which is near Laodicea which was about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, which was on the west coast of the modern-day Turkey. This letter was addressed to Aphia, 
which was most likely Philemon's wife, as well as Philemon, to Archippus, who possibly was a pastor of the church there. Some think he was Philemon and Aphia's son. And to the whole church that met in Philemon's house. There's no record of an actual church building until around the 3rd century. Paul had not visited Colossus, although he had hopes to visit them soon. However, somehow, and it may have been during his ministry at Ephesus, Paul came into contact with Philemon and led him to Christ. Since Philemon was a man of wealth, he owned slaves, and the New Testament never directly speaks against the institution of slavery. However, I love what F.F. Bruce says about Philemon. He says this, What this epistle does is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. One of Philemon's slaves was Onesimus. He had stolen from his, from his uh, master. He had run away. In the Roman Empire, masters had absolute authority over slaves, and they often tortured or even killed them for minor offenses and mistakes. So Onesimus is a fugitive. He's a slave under a capital offense. But you have to love the providence of God because he leads Onesimus all the way to Rome where he somehow crosses paths with Paul. We don't know how it came about, but what we do know is that the hound of heaven was pursuing Onesimus. And he most likely heard the gospel in Philemon's household. He ran from where he could have easily been saved, and he travels hundreds of miles to a large city where he happened to meet Paul. And when Paul shares the gospel, God opens Onesimus' heart, and he trusts Christ, and then he stays with Paul, and they form a relationship as Onesimus serves Paul. Over time, Onesimus grows in his faith through the teaching of Paul, and he realizes that he needs to return to his master and make some sort of restitution for the crimes that he had committed. And now because we have this letter to Philemon, it is proof of the genuine nature of Onesimus's conversion. If he were a false convert, he would have taken off to another hiding spot and never would have returned to Philemon. This short letter is Paul's appeal to his friend Philemon and to the entire church to welcome back this runaway slave, not as some sort of second-class citizen, but as a beloved brother in Christ. Stop and think of the enormity of Paul's task. He's going to have to convince a man and an entire church that was immersed in the cultural acceptance of slavery to set aside that culture that they were so used to that practiced the acceptance of slavery and convinced them of the Christian truth that all people are equal in Jesus Christ. This would be equal to trying to convince a slave owner and a white church in the South pre-Civil War days to accept a returning runaway slave as a member of the church in full standing. Paul could have said, now I'm an apostle and you need to listen to me, but he doesn't do that. 
Instead, he wanted Philemon to be obedient from his heart, and Paul did not deny Onesimus' crime. Paul wanted Philemon, his wife, and the entire church to forgive him completely. Paul wanted mercy to trump justice. He is leaving the door open for Philemon to free his slave so that, so that possibly Onesimus would return to Rome and continue to minister to Paul. And as I was reading this letter, and as I was doing some studying, I quickly realized that there were several ways to approach it. Next week, we'll see what it says about godly relationships. But today, rather than go verse by verse in exposition, I want us to see the transforming power of the gospel. And so we will see how God transforms us through the gospel how he transforms our character, how he transforms our connections with others, and how he transforms our connection with himself. Philemon chapter 1, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is the word of God. May we hear it, may we heed it, and apply it to our lives. Paul, a prisoner of or for Jesus Christ, which by the way, this is the only time that Paul identifies himself as Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ when he starts a letter. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. <clears throat> Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be my, by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your 
owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief letter that Paul writes. Oh God, thank you for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see that, may we heed it, may we apply it to our lives, may we leave here a changed people understanding the gospel transforms us, and may we have a desire to see others transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So the first thing I want us to see as we look at this, this brief letter from, from Paul is that God transforms our character through the gospel. God transforms our character through the gospel. As we read Philemon, we can't help but notice how everyone is behaving differently than they would have before meeting Jesus and receiving the gospel. Now, obviously, these changes... These transformations are not just automatic transformations or the letter would have no need to ever have been written. But our character transformation requires a lifelong work. And so let's look at Paul and Onesimus. Just two of the characters, Paul and Onesimus. So first, let's see that God transforms Paul's character through the gospel. As we read this letter, it's just oozing with the gentleness of Paul. It shows his grace and his sensitivity. Look at verses 4 through 7. He takes the time to commend Philemon lovingly and graciously, and he describes his own, that his own heart is encouraged and joyful because of Philemon's love. He goes on to make an appeal to him as a brother in Christ, and then he urges him in verse 17 that if Philemon considers him a partner to welcome Onesimus, so as he would Paul, and then look how gentle Paul is in verse 20. He asks that he would benefit from Philemon. And have his heart refreshed in Christ. Now, some people might think, well, well, duh, Paul is an apostle, so this is this is what we should expect from him. But but let's not be so quick. Because we can't forget what Paul was like before Christ, right? When the Jews were stoning Stephen, who was innocent, Paul is there watching in agreement with what was taking place in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Afterward, afterwards, it says that Paul begins ravaging the church, entering house to house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison in Acts 8, 3. Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in Acts 9, 1. 
Paul describes himself during this time as being a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor in 1 Timothy 1.13. To put it plainly, Paul was not a nice man. Nor was he kind. Nor would you describe Paul before coming to know Christ. You wouldn't look at the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. You wouldn't look at him and go, I bet you that guy's gentle. There was nothing gentle about him. If you were to call Paul an angry young man, that would be an understatement. But now here he is, about 25 years later. He's gentle. He's humble. He's gracious. And he's urging others to love and kindness. Furthermore, verse 24 reveals something to us about Paul as well and God's transformation. In verse 24, Paul mentions Mark. And on the first missionary journey, Paul took Mark, and Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And later on, when Barnabas wants to give Mark, John Mark, a second chance, Paul adamantly refuses to do so, which leads to a split between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and they, he, he works with him until he becomes a faithful man of God. And as Paul grows in grace and gentleness, he comes to see that Mark has, has a usefulness for service. We read about that in 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul's change of heart towards Mark shows us just how God works, how God transforms us, just like he did the Apostle Paul over the years as the fruit of the Spirit grew in his life. I know in my own life, I came to, when I came to know Christ as my Savior, before that I was, I was an angry person. I had what you would call, you've probably heard it described this way, a short fuse. That was me. I had a short fuse. I'd like to think that I've learned to walk in the spirit, not the flesh, that I have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control than I used to have. I believe that the fruits of the spirit have indeed replaced outbursts of anger. Now, do I mess up? Do I make mistakes? Do I sin? Do I have those outbursts of, of anger at times? Certainly. But the point is, you learn to put off the old sinful habits because you are now indwelled by the spirit of God, that you get rid of that corrupt nature, that corrupt person, and you put on godly habits of the new person in Christ Jesus. And so we see this transformation of Paul and how the gospel has transformed him. Now, let's look at how God transforms Onesimus' character through the gospel. Onesimus had not been a Christian as long as Paul had been. But we read already about the significant transformation in his character. Formerly, he had served Philemon reluctantly, doing only the bare minimum, stealing things as he looked for an opportunity to escape. However, he is in submission to the Lord. He returns to his master, ready and willing to render whatever is required of him. Formerly, Paul said that Anisimus, which by the way, that name means useful, he says, formerly he was useless, in verse 11. 
He was not a good worker, but now he really lives up to the meaning of his name. To both Philemon and to Paul, this can only mean one thing, and that is that God has transformed the character and the attitude of Onesimus. Before, he hated his lot in life as a slave. He hated his master, and he would have even hated his master's God. Now look at him. He's in submission to God to the point that he's willing to give up his freedom and go back and place himself under his master's authority. He is no longer that angry slave, but instead he's a helpful and cheerful servant of the Lord. God has transformed his attitude through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, has God changed your attitude today? Teenager, has God changed you from being a grumbling teen who thinks you have the worst parents in the world and being disobedient to them to a joyful, compliant teen in a heart that seeks to please God? Man and woman, has God changed the way you act in your home and at your job? Perhaps before you did the bare minimum to get by and to keep your job, maybe even grumbling with everyone else about how the management treated you or how this place isn't managed right and this, that, and the other, and constantly at your wit's end. But now you excel with joyful obedience, doing your job as unto the Lord, as the Scripture tells us to. Or maybe at home you were selfish and insensitive, exploding in anger if the rest of the family didn't do things your way, but now you are patient and kind towards them. Maybe you actually think about their needs and seek to serve them. About 50 years after Paul wrote this letter, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was being taken to execution in Rome. At a stopover in Smyrna, he wrote to the church of Ephesus, and he commended their bishop, whose name was Onesimus. Well, we can't possibly identify him as this once runaway slave. We can't say for sure it was him. It's possible that it was him, that God used this once useless slave in a mighty way as a servant of his church. If God has saved you, he transforms your character. He makes you what was useless to being something that is useful in his service. Not only does he transform your character when he saves you, but God transforms your connections with others. He transforms your connections with others. And this is a byproduct of a transformed character. Of course, when you go from being hostile to being gentle, from rebellious to being submissive, from self-serving to being uh, one that serves others, it is bound to affect your relationships. And this little book gives us two relational transformations. We are transformed first from alienation to reconciliation with others. So from alienation with others to reconciliation with others. When Onesimus fled Philemon and Aphia's uh, home, he most likely took some money and some of their belongings. Surely they were angry. They probably even complained about it. Just think of how nice we treated him. And he goes and steals from us and rips us off. What an ungrateful heathen, you know? We've probably never said anything like that, but I doubt Onesimus felt 
all warm and fuzzy inside when he thought of Philemon and Aphia either. I doubt he was like, oh, I just, I feel so great when I think of them. Perhaps it was something like this. They have it all. They have money. They have luxury. They, they make us slaves work to the bone. It's not fair. Sure, I stole a few things, but it's not like they're really going to miss it. They have more than they need anyway. Now, here's my question. How can this relationship between a slave and a master ever be restored to anything? It's only by the power of God and the gospel that transforms us. One crucial evidence, church, that a person has been transformed by the gospel is when they want to repair broken relationships and make restitution for past wrongs. This is what Jesus emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking about the seriousness of sin and anger. And then Jesus said this, So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. You notice what it says? It doesn't say that if you go to the altar to give your gift and there you remember that you have something against your brother. That's not what it says. It says you come to the altar, and while you're there, you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave it. Leave your gift and go, and then be reconciled to your brother, and then come off your gift. Do you get it? You cannot properly worship God until first you've done all you can to be reconciled with the person who has something against you. You cannot sit out there and sing songs to to God and sing praise God and sing all these these things that we want to sing and, and, and have a heart that's ready to worship and praise God if while you're sitting out there, you know that your brother or sister has something against you. It affects your worship. It takes time and effort, but if you will not put any effort into repairing strained relationships, it could be an indication that you're not right with God. If your attitude towards strained relationships is, oh well, no big deal. That person never liked me anyway. It could be an indication that you're not right with God. Now, there are times that we put effort into a relationship and the, and the person that we want to restore a relationship with and they say, oh, I'm okay and they're really not okay and there's nothing you can do about that or they, they hold a secret grudge against you. You ever done that to somebody? You Like you hold a secret grudge against them and they don't know that you're holding a grudge against them because it's a secret grudge. And so you're, you're just really mad at them, but you never tell them that you're mad at them. And you never tell them that you're upset with them, but you just do things, you know. You just, you treat them a certain way. Maybe you don't talk to them. And maybe, ever, maybe when they're up here in the front pew, you're like 
staring at the back of their head real hard, you know, or something like that. You got a secret grudge against them. We do that, right? And it, it's, you can't restore that if you don't know there's a problem. That bitterness. There's nothing you can do about that. Either they're going to have to deal with the sin that's in their heart, especially their sin of unforgiveness. And by the way, if that's you today, if you're struggling with the sin of unforgiveness, please go and read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you're struggling with bitterness towards someone, please go and read Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Church, reconciled relationships are a big deal to God. But you know what else is a big deal? Unreconciled ones. And I would venture to guess that there are some of you that may even be here today that cannot properly worship God because you have an unreconciled relationship, possibly even with someone in this church. If they're a big deal to God, they should be a big deal to us. And so, if you are here and you have a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ that is strained, I implore you, believer, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Don't hold on to it. Deal with it so you can come in and properly worship God with the freedom and say, I lo-, actually sing, I love you, Lord, and mean it without bitterness and unreconciled relationships in your heart. Deal with it. God transforms us from alienation to reconciliation. That's a sign that you've been transformed by the gospel. So if you refuse reconciliation, what does that tell us? That perhaps you've not been transformed by the gospel. But let's see this as well. Not only are we transformed from alienation to reconciliation, we are transformed from social relationships to familial relationships. From social to familial. This is so great. I love this. You see the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Before, it's strictly a master-slave relationship. But not anymore, right? Before, it's, it's master, Philemon master, Onesimus slave. But the gospel transforms that. Look at verse 6. Paul says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. I love it. We don't know whether Philemon freed Anisimus immediately. We don't know. But even if he didn't, they now relate to one another on a different basis. Perhaps they're in church. I love to picture this. They're in church and, and here comes Philemon, master. Serves Onesimus. Communion. 
Perhaps Onesimus sometimes opens a scripture, right? Onesimus sat under Paul. You get that? Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament. Onesimus sat under Paul. Perhaps Onesimus opens up the scripture and says, let me share what the Apostle Paul taught me. And Philemon, his master, listens intently. We don't know what happened. But what we do know is that the gospel looks at social class and distinction and it erases it. And it puts us into a relationship as family members. Members of one family of God. Because there is no room for social distinction. There is no room for class distinction. There is no room for racial distinction or discrimination in the church of Jesus Christ because we are all brothers and sisters because the gospel. Now this doesn't mean that that if your boss is a believer that he's no longer your boss on the job. You can't, well, you're not my boss anymore because you're a believer. We're brothers, so you can't tell me what to do. That's not what it's talking about. We still show proper respect for authority. But while in social settings or in the church, we're the family of God. God transforms everyone that he saves through the gospel. He transforms our character. He transforms our relationships with others. And finally, he transforms our connection with him. He transforms our connection with him. In the book of Philemon, we have this beautiful illustration of the salvation that every single believer enjoys. See, God created us, you and I, to serve him. He's our rightful owner and master. But we're all like Anisimus, aren't we? We've all rebelled against our master. I'm not going to do what you want, God. I'm going to do my own thing. We've all gone our own way. We've all declared that there's no master that's ever going to rule over us. So we've taken everything that God has given us to use for him and for his glory, our talents, our time, our treasures, and we have squandered them on ourselves. All in our claim to be free from God. And you know what's happened, right? When we take our time and our talents and our treasures and we squander them saying, Oh, I'm free! I'm, I'm free to live for myself. You know what we've just done? We've become a slave to Like Anisimus, we're a condemned fugitive on the run. We're useless to our rightful master, God. And we stand guilty and indebted to him. We've robbed God. But just like God had his sovereign hand 
on Onesimus. So he does with us. And while you and I were deliberately running the opposite direction from God, he providentially led us to someone that shared the gospel with us. Perhaps in the beginning we were afraid of dealing with God because we knew we were guilty. We thought just like the prodigal son thought of his father, how can I return to God and stand before an almighty God guilty with all of my sin, with everything that I've done to rebel against God? How can I possibly do it? And we heard the Savior say in his mercy, that we can't plead our own case, that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can say on our behalf. There's no possible way that you and I can justify ourselves in front of a holy God because you and I are guilty as charged. The Savior says to us, give God this letter from me. And we look down and read those words in verse 17. Receive him as you would receive me. How does he do it? How does God, the holy master, how can he receive us as he would his only son. How? With all of our wrongs, with all of our guilt, with all the filth of our sin that I've committed towards God, God, how can you possibly receive me? And we keep reading the letter, right? Because he doesn't end with receive him as you would me. We read the letter from Jesus and we read, If he has wronged you, if he owes anything, charge it to my account. Please understand, church. We are... Onesimus. We have ran as hard as we can from God and we've went our own way, but our Savior has paid the price and He makes the plea to God that we be received as one of God's children because He has paid the debt that we owe that we could not pay. But that only happens when we trust in Christ as our Savior. And maybe you've heard it before, but you did not understand it. And your eyes have been opened and it makes sense. We can never hope to pay God for all of the sins that we've committed. But this is the beauty of the gospel message. We don't have to pay for it. I can't pay for it and I don't have to. Christ has paid our debt at the cross and everything that we've stolen and all the things that we've taken, they all, all the wages, everything 
that we owe has been charged to the account of Jesus Christ. We can put our trust in the Savior who paid the debt that we owed. We return to the Master and we willingly place ourselves under the Lordship of the Master. That is how we know true freedom. Freedom from the slavery of sin. And when we live our lives to please Him and to do His will, then the Lord Jesus who paid our debt, the debt that we owe, is pleased to call you and I brother or sister, just as Paul, the apostle, called Onesimus the slave, his brother in Christ. Praise God. Now, perhaps you or others think this whole gospel thing, it's good for someone who has had a rough background and they've done all th- kinds of bad things. And, you know, they were drinking and cursing like a sailor before they were six and all that jazz. Gospel's good for them, but I've always been good. I've gone to church my whole life. I'm not like that runaway slave Anisimus. Consider this story that I found. Some years ago, a church in England was having a combined communion service with one of its mission churches. The pastor noticed that a former burglar was kneeling at the communion rail beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who years before had sentenced that burglar to seven years in prison After his release, the burglar had been converted to Christ and had become a Christian worker. After the service, as the judge and the pastor walked home together, the judge asked him, Did you see who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail? Yes, replied the pastor, but I didn't know that you noticed. And the two men walked on in silence for a few moments, and then the judge says, What a miracle of grace! The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, What a marvelous miracle of grace. And then the judge says, But who do you refer to? The pastor replied, Why to the conversion of that conflict? The judge says, But I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. What do you mean? The pastor asked. The judge replied, That burglar knew how much he needed Christ to save him from his sins. But look at me. I was taught from childhood to live as a gentleman, to keep my word, to say my prayers, to go to church. I went through Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. Pastor, nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit that I was a sinner on the same level of of that burglar. It took much more grace to forgive me for all my pride, all my self-righteousness, to get me to admit that I was no better in the eyes of God than that convict whom I had sent to prison. So let me ask you this morning. Has God opened your eyes for you to see that you are just as needy of the Savior as anyone else, just like Anisimus or that convicted burglar? Have you genuinely trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to pay the debt that you owe? If you have trusted in Christ, in his grace transforming, is his grace transforming you? 
Is your character marked by the fruits of the Spirit? When people look at you, do they see love and gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control? Do you live a life of a submissive attitude towards authority, even if you feel that you're mistreated? Is your changing or are you changing from one that is self-centered and useless to being a servant centered as your or to being servant-centered as you serve others and serve Christ. And finally, what about your relationships? What about the relationships that you have? Are you working towards reconciliation to those from whom you are alienated? Or are you just satisfied where you're at? Do you sit back and say, that's their problem to fix, not mine? Have you sought forgiveness? Have you made restitution to those that you've wronged or to those that you are harboring bitterness towards? Will those who formerly knew you as someone that lives for yourself and your own glory, would they look at your life now see you as someone that lives for Christ in his glory is that you maybe today you realize your life is not as transformed as you thought it was your character is not marked by the fruits of the spirit that you don't seek restitution and reconciliation, perhaps you're happy to sit and waller in your own bitterness. Then you have a problem. And that problem may be that you don't even know Christ is your Savior. Or that problem may be that you so quench the Holy Spirit you can't even hear him anymore and you are in a dangerous, dangerous spot, my friend. And so if that's you, I urge you, seek reconciliation. And if you're here today and you're just like Anisimus, you're running from your master, I'd urge you, trust in Christ, the one who paid it all for you. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. Let me stand down front. Maybe this morning you need some prayer. You can pray, you can pray in your pew. You can come down and I'll pray with you. You can pray at this altar if you want. Maybe you just need to surrender some things to God. Maybe this morning you need to restore a relationship. You need to seek reconciliation. Maybe you need to seek someone out, someone out. After, after this service. Maybe you need to get on a phone. Maybe you need to call someone. I don't know what you may need to do. But I plead with you, brother, sister, seek reconciliation. Or maybe this morning, the first time the gospel made sense, and you need to surrender to the master. I'll be standing down front. Just come forward and say, I need to surrender. I don't know Christ. I'll be glad to talk with you and share with you how you can know Christ, how you can trust in him, and have the assurity of heaven. Let's close with prayer.